At the end of the service today, um, we're going to be singing together, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and what we're going to do, what we've been doing over the Christmas season is we've been taking different well-known Christmas carols each week. We've been using one of them to kind of talk about the birth of Jesus. Why did he come? What difference does that make? Now, many of these Christmas carols um, have very deep theological meanings, and yet uh, we often miss the significance because we're so familiar with them. We sing them so often. What we are doing, though, over these weeks is we're kind of reflecting on the words of these songs, and then we're going to the scriptures and we're saying, what is it that we can learn about Jesus during this hectic, uh, crazy time of year? What is it that we can do to kind of focus on what it is that really matters in life? Well, Hark the Herald Angels Sing is surely one of our favorite Christmas carols to sing. It was written by a guy named Charles Wesley. Uh, Charles was the brother of the famous John Wesley, and the Wesley brothers were part of the great revivals that took place in England. But back in that day, they weren't allowed, they weren't, um, they, they weren't admitted into the Anglican Church of the day. In fact, the Anglican Church of the day wasn't very happy with their ministry. And in fact, one of the reasons uh, was theological, but then there's also these issues of the method of their ministry. For example, they preached outside, they preached to minors, they preached to people who were gathered in crowds with open doors, and so the church thought that that was a little unconventional and didn't want them to be a part of the Anglican church. When John Wesley died... He wasn't allowed to be buried in the Anglican cemetery. Instead, they had to find another place in order to bury his body. And so he was buried in this, what was called an unconsecrated ground, uh, unholy ground. But you know, it doesn't really matter where, where you're buried, right? Because God's going to find you anyway. That if you think that somehow you're going to hide from God, that somehow if you don't get uh, buried in the right cemetery, that he's not going to be able to find you, well, that's not true, right? I say that all because Hark the Herald Angels Sing was not widely received in its day. In fact, the story goes that the way it made itself, its way into the Anglican Book of Common Prayer was that a printer needed one more song to kind of even out the hymnal. And so that was the song that he picked at the end. And so because it was added to this hymnal as a bit of an afterthought, it gained a popularity over the years. But then also there was a guy by the name of Felix Mendelssohn who had written some music. And that music would later be adapted, the tune of that would be adapted to this song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. What I'd like to do this morning is I want to read from Luke chapter 2, that passage where this song comes from, and I'd like to then reflect on some theological truths that we can learn from this song and from this text. And so Luke chapter 2, you can grab your Bibles or grab one in the pew rack in front of me, but join me there in Luke chapter 2. We'll also have these words up on the screen. But Luke chapter 2, and we're going to look specifically at verses 7 through 18. Now, as we read this, I want you to think about this as kind of like the first Christmas concert. Now, when you think about a concert, there's the audience, and there are the people who are singing, the people who are performing, and then there's also the content of what it is that they're singing, the message that they're giving. 
And so I want us to think about those things as we kind of read through this this morning. Luke, he gives us the story of Christmas that many of us know so well or so familiar with. And so we're in Luke chapter 2, we're beginning there in verse 7, and here is what we read. It says, And she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Those of you who know the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and I assume most of you do, um, you know that it begins with this word, hark. And and hark is kind of like this pretty old word. It's not a word that we use normally in conversation anymore. But what it means is simply to listen, to listen. And and what the writer of this carol, uh, Charles Wesley, is telling us is that he wants us to pay attention, that we need to listen to something that he is afraid that we are going to miss. He puts his message in the mouths of shepherds. You see, the shepherds that we just read about in Luke chapter 2 were the only ones who actually saw and heard the angels that evening. And there are some things that uh, happened that evening, that were experienced that evening, that we must not miss here this morning. The shepherds who sing this song, this carol, seem to be pretty overwhelmed by three things. And these three things then give us the ability to kind of understand the secret of the true meaning of Christmas. I want to talk a little bit about these three things here this morning. And here's what they are. We're going to talk this morning about the audience, the celebration, and the proclamation. The audience, the celebration, and the proclamation. First, the audience. These shepherds had to have been amazed that these angels had chosen to appear to them. I mean, why would God bypass the rabbinical schools of the day? Why would he bypass the universities? Why did he bypass that big city of Jerusalem and choose this little town of Bethlehem, this smaller town five or six miles south of Jerusalem? And why the shepherds? I mean, some of you are already familiar with this. You might already know this, but the shepherds had to have been the least likely people on earth to receive this angelic announcement about the birth of a king. Shepherds were considered to be the lowest class of the Jewish society. 
They, they were the ultimate unskilled laborers. Uh, shepherds, uh, shepherding was a job that was often done by children. And so the, the adults, uh, if you were an adult and you were still a shepherd, it meant a total life fail for you. That people had such low regard for the shepherds that their testimony wasn't even received in the court uh, of that day. It, it had no validity in the court. They, they weren't considered to be very significant in society. But God wanted to be sure right here at the very beginning that it would be understood that this message of Christmas was for everyone. You might remember what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In verses 26 through 28, and it says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Here's why the angels appearing to the shepherds of all the people in Israel is so important for you and for me. It's because while at Christmas time it is joyful, Christmas time is a joyful time for a lot of people because, you know, you think about it, all is calm and all is bright. I mean, there's songs and there's joy and excitement. For others, though, it reminds them of the, how disappointed they are at where their lives are and how their lives have turned out. It makes some people feel like they're really all alone. I mean, everyone else seems to be going home. They're going to their families and friends at Christmas time, and you feel like you're just all alone. Maybe this season reminds you that someone in your life that used to be close to you isn't around anymore. And maybe you think of a father or a husband or a mother or a wife or a child, a friend, maybe a girlfriend or a boyfriend. Or maybe you forget how broken and dysfunctional your family is until Christmas time comes around, you know. And for some of you, your entire goal during the Christmas season is not to have the police called. And, and, and you think, you know what, that would make for a good Christmas season. I heard one guy say, you know, happiness is life, uh, in life is having a large family, a close-knit family, all of whom live somewhere else, some other city, some other state far away. Maybe this Christmas finds you jobless for one of the first times that you can remember and you're worried about the future. Maybe you're concerned this Christmas about your kids and the decisions that they're making. Maybe you're concerned about your marriage. Maybe you're concerned about your lack of marriage prospects for yet another year. Maybe you find yourself in trouble this Christmas. In trouble with your job, trouble financially, trouble with your health, trouble relationally. These shepherds who came into this first Christmas didn't come feeling like their lives were so totally awesome. I mean, maybe you're in exactly the same place here this morning. But you see, the good news, and what I hope you'll understand here this morning, is that you are the very people that the angels have come with this message of good news. And so to you, and to me, and to all of us, they say, hark, listen to this incredible good news, this incredible message that we have. 
This announcement is significant because of who it's made to. But then secondly, I want us to notice here the, the celebration. These shepherds, they must have been amazed by all the celebrating that's going on by these heavenly hosts over the birth of this baby. That evening, the angels had said, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. That, that simply means that God deserves the greatest praise for the birth of this baby. The greatest praise. That, that probably, that, that's pretty remarkable when you really think about what else the angels had seen. I mean, these angels had been uh, there and they had seen, they had been firsthand eyewitnesses of creation. When God spoke a word, when he said a phrase, let there be light, and everything, all of these billions of galaxies burst into existence. Astronomers tell us that there are about 3,000 billion trillion stars in the universe. That's a three with 24 zeros after it. Now, I know that numbers like that are kind of, uh, we, we don't really relate to them all that much. They, they, they kind of start jumbling together after a while. And maybe you say, you know what? I just want to open up my bank account and have three digits after the number. I mean, that's all I really care. I mean, I can't really think about anything much bigger than that. I mean, three billion, what kind of a number is that? Well, let me just kind of give us some help here this morning and kind of wrap our minds around the size of that number for just a second here. A million seconds ago, a million seconds ago from this morning was Wednesday, November 28th. That was a week and four days ago. So that's a million seconds ago. If you think about a billion seconds ago, how long was that? How long was a billion seconds ago? Maybe July 4th? I mean, maybe it was New Year's Day last year. A billion seconds ago was actually April 1st, 1987. April 1st, 1987. That's a billion seconds ago. The, the first laptop computers were just beginning to be released onto the market to the general public. They weighed 18 pounds. George Bush Sr. was the vice president of the United States. In 1987, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were debuting their cartoon the first time around. There are a number of you here in this room this morning who aren't even a billion seconds old yet. I mean, if you were born after April 1st, 1987, and you started counting every second that you've been alive ever since then, you haven't even reached a billion seconds yet. You're young. And so that's one billion, but how long ago do you think a trillion seconds was? How long ago was a trillion seconds? Maybe you think like, well, what about 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue? I mean, was that it? What was it the first Christmas? Was that a trillion seconds ago? A trillion seconds ago was 31,688 years ago. Rocky One had just come out. Um, I know that's not really that funny, huh? You're like, what's that Rocky One? Well, scientists tell us that the universe contains 3,000 billion trillion stars. And just about every one of those stars, every second, puts out an amount of energy that would be the same as one trillion atom bombs. These angels had seen God create all of this 
with just the word, let there be light. And all of those things just burst into existence in that moment. But that is not what they said. Gave glory to God in the highest. What gave God glory in the highest as they sang that evening was this. That veiled in flesh the Godhead sing. See, hail incarnate deity. Please as man with man to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. They thought that the greatest glory that God had ever displayed was his decision to come and to die for sinners. To come and to live among sinners, to identify himself with them, to uh, take their place. They wondered, why in the world would God ever do this? A few years back, there was a very controversial case in the news involving a soldier by the name of Bo Bergdahl. Many people said that he had deserted his post, he had abandoned his fellow soldiers, he had committed uh, crimes against the United States of America, he had conducted himself in an inappropriate manner in front of the enemy. And, And some even went so far as to say that this man was a traitor. Now, what made this case controversial is that our government at the time decided that we would trade five of the most dangerous Taliban officials that we had in custody to secure the release of Bo Bergdahl. And what many people said was, I mean, it doesn't really make any sense that we would do this. Why would we trade five prisoners for this guy? I mean, what if they come back and they kill a whole bunch of other Americans? Why would we trade Bo Bergdahl? I mean, he's a traitor. He's a deserter. Why would we trade him for good, the lives of good Americans that we love so much? Now, I don't want to try to start a controversy or a debate or anything like that by bringing this story up, but I'm not saying anything particularly about who Bo Bergdahl is or what he deserves, but I do know this, and I want you to understand this, that God knew for sure that you and I were traitors. He knew that we were deserters of his glory, and he traded... Not the lives of five terrorists to get us back. But he offered the life of his own precious son, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. But the gospel is that you and I were hopelessly doomed. But God, the creator, came to take our place so that we would not have to suffer the penalty that we had deserved, that we brought upon ourselves. That God's son, Jesus, would suffer in our place. The book of 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter says that the angels long to look into this, that they are amazed by all of this. They've seen God create the stars. They've seen him put these stars in the sky that put off so much energy that every second they, they could power a trillion atom bombs. But that is not the thing that blows their minds. What they long to look so deeply into. What the angels who see the face of God every day. What they can't wrap their minds around. Is the mercy that is displayed towards sinful people in the gospel. Towards you and towards me. And so they say, hail the heaven born prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. The angels had seen God's power to create the stars with mind-boggling energy and in mind-boggling numbers. 
But what they say, that, that what, what was so unbelievable to them is how God would show such mercy to rebellious sinners that, that He would put His power on display, that He would resurrect dead uh, people and, and He would uh, re- resurrect and, and um, bring healing from the curse of death. You understand that greater than God's power to create the stars is God's power to put back together the life of a sinful, rebellious person who repents and comes to God through faith in Jesus Christ. You think that that your sin is bad. You think that you have messed up things. You, You think that you're so guilty that you just can't be forgiven. Well, God says, there is more power in my ability to forgive than there is in the word that I spoke that caused the universe to spring into existence You think about that sin that has scarred your life. You think about how messed up your heart is. You think about how maybe you feel like you've just destroyed this relationship. And in many ways we have. But God says, there is more power in my resurrection of Jesus from the dead and my ability to heal your life than there is in anything that I have ever created. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. You see, the gospel is that you and I were doomed in our first birth, in our natural birth. And so Jesus came to save us. He gave us a new birth. You see, underneath all of our good religious moral makeup... We're really just rebellious sinners. If you were to strip all that away, that's all that we'd be left with, rebellious sinners. Now, I know that that might sound a little harsh, but I want us to honestly think about that for just a moment here this morning. That deep down, have have you not always assumed that you know best how to live your life? And so have I. You know, as kids, we thought that we knew better than our parents. If I was to go around and to ask you this morning, you kids, um, if I was to ask you to be honest this morning, many of you would say, yes, I know better than my parents, or I think I do. As we get older, maybe we grow up a little bit, but not a whole lot changes. We, we assume that we know best how to rule our lives, which is why our obedience to God is really always conditional with us. We, we, we struggle to give him complete control because, uh, after all, I mean, really, I know best how to run my life. And I know better than even God himself. H- have we not preferred ourselves and focused on ourselves and made ourselves the center of the world rather than God? Well, why is it that when you look at a picture at Christmas time, you evaluate how good that c- picture is? By how you look in that picture. Because life is really all about you. It's really all about us, right? We we make it about our glory. We we want to be the focus. We want to be the center of everything. Haven't we always thought that our will ought to trump God's will when the two are in contradiction or in conflict with each other? The angels understand that that's moral insanity. They understand that that's cosmic treason. And the penalty for cosmic treason is death. Now, I know that that's not popular today. 
And basically, people today want to say, we're good people. And maybe we have a few blind spots, maybe we have a few weaknesses, but I think that a lot of people just misunderstand me. I mean, I have a lot of hidden potential that just hasn't been tapped into yet. But I have to tell you that that's not what the Bible says about us. It says that you and I are traitors to God, that we are a traitor race, that we are part of this traitor race, and we are under the rightful curse of death. You see, there are only two ways that that curse can be resolved. One way is for you and for me to suffer the consequences of that curse eternally ourselves, which means that we're going to be separated from God forever in a place of eternal death called hell. Or Jesus, in his mercy, in his love, in his grace, would be born as a baby to live the life that we were supposed to live. And then to die the death that we were condemned to die, that he would absorb that curse in our place so that we could escape it. That was the cross. It was Jesus dying in your place and in mine. It was not his pride or his rebellion, or his deceit, or his immorality, or his selfishness. It, it was not his impurity that caused him to be nailed to the cross. Because he had none of those things present in him. Instead, it was my sin, and my pride, and my lies, my selfishness. It was my rebellion, and my deceit that caused those nails to go into his hands, and caused that crown of thorns to be placed on his brow. It was... The creator dying in place of the created. The angels see this and they cannot understand. I mean, why wouldn't you just wipe out the human race? Why wouldn't you just create a new race, a new human race from scratch? Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. I know that it's also not popular today. Uh, or It's popular to think that um, you know, there's lots of ways to get to God that uh, I, I, I can, I'm going to get to God my way. Just as long as I'm sincere, my path is going to be okay. I mean, whatever path you take is all right. After all, God's kind of like a mountain, right? And, and all of these different roads lead up the mountain, but they all ultimately lead to the same place. Well, I need to help you understand this morning that that, that that is clearly, as the Bible says anything, as clearly as Jesus says anything, that's not true. What the Bible says is that salvation is found in nobody else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The Bible also says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Jesus himself says in John chapter 14 and verse 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, every other religion teaches that you can somehow find a way to save yourself. You know, if you'll just be good enough, if you'll practice enough religious observances, if you'll go to church enough, if you'll take communion, if you go to the mosque, if you just pray towards Mecca, if you sacrifice to Buddha, if you do all these things and you do them enough, then you'll be saved. But Jesus taught the exact opposite of that. He said, you can't save yourself. He said, you know what? You're never going to be able to save yourself. No matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, you can't do it. You need to humble yourself and receive this gift that I offer. 
And that's not what the message of this world and in our culture today teaches, right? I see it like this. You know, if I couldn't swim and I fell off the side of a boat and there I am in the water, I'm thrashing around trying to stay above the water. I'm just trying to keep myself afloat. I'm struggling. And you're standing off to the side on dry ground. In your right hand, you have this life-saving ring that you could throw out to me. Or in your left hand, you have this big old rock. And I say, save me, save me. And you say, okay, well, which one do you want me to throw to you? And I say, well, it doesn't really matter as long as you're sincere. Just throw one of them my way in all sincerity and I'll be good. Well, that would be foolish, right? Because it does matter which one you throw to me. Religion says, try harder, be better, swim a little bit more. But Jesus' message is, you know what, you're drowning, and so I did it for you. I did what you could never do. I lived the life that you were supposed to live, but didn't live. I died the death that you were condemned to die, but couldn't suffer unless you suffered it eternally. And now I offer to you, as a gift, uh, this message, this good news of salvation That you have to receive. The angel says. Listen. This is your lifeline. But then lastly. We see the proclamation. That the shepherds were probably amazed. That they were chosen. uh, To be given this announcement of good news. And then they were to take this announcement of good news. To everyone else. You, You think about this. The only ones who saw the angel that night were the shepherds. Everybody else heard this announcement from the shepherds. I mean, the shepherds, they get all of this glory and and, and songs and noels and hallelujahs. And everybody else gets smelly, barely literate shepherds. Now, honestly, I mean, we might be a little disappointed by that, right? Most of us would probably have preferred the angels. But you see, this is a very important thing that we need to learn about God. That throughout Scripture, God's primary way of speaking to people is through broken and flawed instruments. Through people like the shepherds. You see, the first time that most people hear the gospel message, it's typically through someone who they know pretty well. That most people hear the gospel message for the first time from somebody like a family member or a friend. And here's the thing about family members and friends. We know all their flaws, right? And so you think, well, you start to wonder to yourself, I mean, how could God possibly be speaking to me through my older brother? I mean, he's terrorized me for all these years when I was growing up. How could God use him? I mean, this would be the last person that God could possibly use to represent him here on this planet. Or maybe you heard the gospel for the first time from that annoying neighbor and you think, wow, I mean, their kids are totally out of control. I mean, you look at their yard, it is the the eyesore of the neighborhood. How could they possibly grasp the mysteries of eternity and share them with me? Listen, just because the messenger is flawed doesn't mean that the message is flawed. Because God chooses as his primary mouthpiece shepherds. That's how this first Christmas was, and that's how it is today as well. It's a very famous Old Testament story that if you grew up in Sunday school, you're probably very familiar with it. But it's the story of a guy by the name of Balaam. 
And and Balaam was about to do something that God didn't want him to do. And so he sends this this angel to kind of stand in the way to prevent him from doing this. And and so uh, Balaam is there. He's with his donkey and his donkey's in the road. And this uh, angel with this flaming sword is standing there ready to stop them. Now, Balaam can't see the angel, but the donkey sees the angel, and he decides that he is going to stop. He he won't move forward any further. Well, Balaam starts to curse the donkey, but the donkey still doesn't go forward. And so Balaam jumps off the donkey and starts kicking this donkey, and then he picks up a stick and he starts beating the donkey. And so God, in his mercy, opens the donkey's mouth, gives him the ability to speak, and the donkey says, look, Jack, you better cut it out. Because I'm trying to save your life here. Well, the reason why I tell you this story is because God spoke through that donkey. God used a donkey to get his message across. And the point is, is that God can speak, if God can speak through a donkey, then he can use that annoying neighbor, right? He can use that flawed family member. He can use that flawed friend. Listen, this message to you and to me from the shepherds is hark, listen. You see, God has been pursuing you. God has been speaking to you. He's been trying to wake you up. He's been trying to draw you closer to himself. And this reminder this morning is just one of a number of things that God has maybe been using in your life to speak to you. And the question that Charles Wesley asks in this carol and the question that I have for us today is this. Would you stop for just a minute and listen? Would you let all of the rush and the stress of the Christmas season kind of fade away, fade into the background and listen for just a minute? These angels are not trying to tell you to try harder. They're not telling you to be better. They're not telling you that you're not good enough and that you somehow need to clean your life up. God is saying that you can't ever be good enough. But he loves you anyway. He loved you so much that he left heaven itself for you. He did the work of saving you. The the, the same God who created the stars of the sky set his love upon you. And 2,000 years ago, he appeared as a baby in a manger so that he could live the life that you were supposed to live. And then he would suffer the death that you were condemned to suffer. And he did it in your place. So that you would not just receive him, but that he could do this work of transforming and changing you. That there's nothing that you need to do. There's nothing that you can do except for listen to his voice. For those of you who've received this precious gift, it is life transforming. It is life changing. It is life giving. If you haven't yet received Christ as your Savior and your Lord, then today, let that be the day of salvation today. Hearken to his voice. Listen and receive the hope that is found in Jesus Christ and him alone. You can't save yourself. But Jesus came to be the Savior of the world. He came to save you. Let's pray.